Micros is like YC for software engineers, except that instead of having partners, we have built the software that kind of orchestrates all these peer-to-peer groups so that they learn from each other, challenge each other, and hold each other accountable. But it's, it's very similar in that sense. My name is Ish Bade, and I'm the founder and CEO of Virtually. And this is Reshaping Education where we discuss boot camps, online education, and how the internet is changing how we learn. Hey everybody, Ish here, joined today by Ariel Camus, founder and CEO of Microverse. Ariel, so great to have you today. Would you be able to introduce yourself real quick? It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Ish, for, for hosting this. And uh, yeah, I, as I said, I'm the founder and CEO of Microverse. We are a school that trains people all around the world, specifically for a remote and international job in software engineering. And we focus particularly in the emerging and developing markets where people wouldn't have access to the global economy. Otherwise, we don't charge anything upfront. We only charge once they start making a good amount of money. And I love what, what, what I do. It's part of the story of my life that I'm looking forward to sharing more about with you. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Ariel, we've done tons and tons of interviews of educational leaders, but none of them lead programs as unique as Microverse. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited for today's conversation is to go really deep into this new type of education and curriculum that you guys have developed. I'm really excited because if this is something that can be applied to other people's educational systems, I think it could be a game changer for uh, student outcomes, for uh, curriculum design. Uh, there's so much. But before we get to that juicy content, I always like to go back in time and just hear about the founding story a little bit. Uh, I believe Microverse actually isn't your first company. So uh, tell us a little bit about your first company and your journey to founding Microverse, going through YC and ultimately building this very unique model that I'm sure we're going to get to in a little while. Yeah, I'm going to start in the middle. Yeah, I, I was living in San Francisco back in 2013. I had just sold my previous startup. It was uh, a much smaller one, I have to say. And we were building one of the first apps in the world that offer offline maps for people traveling abroad who didn't have data on their phones. We got to more than a million users with that app. We never built a huge business, but from a product point of view, it was very solid. And we got an offer to, to, to sell that company to Lonely Planet, to the Travel Guides brand. And you know, that by itself was a great you know, story. I had a lot of fun and learned a lot. And something after that happened, like you feel like you have behind you a few years of running a company, which is quite exhausting. And you're looking for looking forward to starting something new, but I wanted a little disconnect. So I spent one month in a very different place before I started working for Lonely Planet. I spent one month in Burundi, in East Africa. I spent that month teaching in the University of Computer Science. And I got to see one of the most distant signs of the spectrum compared to San Francisco, California, when it comes to accessing great opportunities in life. I was teaching or enabling learning, like I like calling it, with people who in the context of Burundi were quite privileged because they could afford going to private computer science college. But even those people, when they talked about their potential job opportunity, they talked about 
managing a local cyber cafe. And I had just sold a company for millions of dollars just because the acquirer wanted to hire a bunch of my software engineers. So it just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense from, for a lot of reasons. Um, yes, I believe that the individuals deserve better, but also because the companies were doing absurd things to attract talent where talent is out there just waiting to be found and given an opportunity. But it also got me thinking a lot about my own life. And like those people in Burundi, I, my life journey didn't start in the first world, in the developed world. It started in Argentina, in Latin America. And I don't come from upper class families, like middle class family. You know, I went to like public education in a country where like we had to emigrate to Europe when I was 12 because of all the financial and safety difficulties that my parents were seeing and, and were starting to impact me and my sister. And they, much more so than I and my sister then, paid a huge price for immigration. It's never easy, right? It's never easy in any country. You're starting from scratch. Immigration is a pain in the neck. But in this case, when they had to have you know, three jobs at the same time, their you know, college degrees were not valid there. They didn't know anybody. It was hard to get me and my uh, sister into the school system. Like, it, it's such a massive deal. Like, you don't have a social support network. Your families are, your communities there. It's not there. Your culture is not the same. So it was really hard. But looking back, I realized that it is because of those sacrifices that I got all the amazing opportunities that I got in my life. The reason I ended up going to great college in Europe, the reason I ended up traveling and moving to San Francisco, California and selling a business there. And then I'm going to Burundi just because I wanted to spend a month there teaching. The reason I got to spend one year, one year living in Asia, one year living all through like Latin America, those privileges come from the sacrifices of my parents. And the fact that your opportunities in life depend on where you were born or the sacrifices of certain people, how lucky you get in life. It doesn't make sense because of the reasons I mentioned before. We have hundreds of thousands of companies desperate for talent in every country in the world, not just in the U.S., who are paying absurd salaries. And it makes sense. We need all these people. This digital transformation is just getting started. The potential is amazing. But I think that it's inevitable that we are going to find a way to unlock all this untapped talent in the world because we need it. And we need it not just for these tech companies because every business is you know, becoming a tech business in one way or another, but also because we have all these massive challenges like, you know, like climate change and curing cancer and you know, traveling to Mars. And all these challenges are only going to become more challenging the more we evolve a society, which means they're going to be required more collaboration across countries, across uh, like cultures to be able to fix them. And I think climate change is a great example of that. Unless we get good at global collaboration and really leveraging all the human potential, we're not going to be in a great place. Uh, but I'm an optimist, very optimistic, too much, very often. So I know we'll figure that out. And in this case, I went back to San Francisco obsessed with this problem. And the first aha moment happened when I met the founder of GitLab, Sid. And he showed me everything he was doing with GitLab. I started reading and devouring 
their team handbook and how they make the company work completely remotely with people in, in lots of different countries around the world. But this was back in 2014, right? Not today. Today with the pandemic, this seems more obvious. But back in 2014, it was very unique. And I, I realized this is a remote work will become the bridge between the talents and the opportunities. It is inevitable. We have offshoring, nearshoring, key economy, freelance economy, remote work. It, just, it was just a matter of time. We needed the desperation for the talent. We needed the right tools. We needed the right connectivity. We needed the right playbook for how to make this work. And GitLab was writing that playbook. And I was like, okay, it's just a matter of time. But if we want remote work to become this enabler, not only will we need people to have the same access to world class education from a technical point of view, but they will also need to have a great education when it comes to how to work remotely, how to work internationally and multiculturally, where communication is more asynchronous and it has to be lower context, so more explicit, where very often there is much more written communication, where you work with people from very different you know, accents and religious beliefs and cultures and rituals. And you know, all of this has to be integrated into how we work. And GitLab was writing a playbook for, for, for this, but schools, no one was teaching this. So the challenge became, how do we build, how do we reinvent a learning model that can deliver a world-class education that doesn't have the fragility that I was seeing in Burundi where students depended on international teachers who were volunteers who often had to miss their you know, travel plans or they, and they couldn't teach and students were like wasting their time. How do we do it so that it is world-class accessible and affordable to people in every corner of the planet and that at the same time can teach the skills to work remote and internationally. And that's what I've been doing for the last seven years now trying to crack that problem. And we got there in a really good way. And it's still a long journey and exciting one ahead of us. Wow. Ariel, uh, the, your story is a powerful one. And it's one that resonates with me pretty profoundly because I, I also was an immigrant. I came from actually India to North America. And my parents, just like you, had three jobs. And I 100% remember as a kid, the grind that it took for them to go from even having great credentials, still not, you know, being valid and having to work their way up to what they're doing today. And big part of what enabled it for them was online education. Both my mom and I actually taught for, we learned to code at the same time via tutorials on YouTube. And that put her on the path to being engineering manager at a healthcare IT company. And it, it led me on a path to becoming an engineer at Facebook. Okay, and like no, you said, awesome. yeah, yeah, exactly. And when you put education in front of the right people, I think one of the magical things happens is that it, it opens up opportunity and, and you're totally right. It's it, right now, one of the most tragic things about our world is so much of those opportunities are dictated by where you're born. And I think another really magical thing that ho I, my hope is with online education, you're working in the space, I'm working in the space, is that oh, with in-person education, you have to, these educators have to go out of their way to make it diverse. One of the things with online education is actually it's diverse by default. You actually have to try to make it not diverse. And so one of the things I'm getting so excited about with as our move to remote learning is this idea of ideas by, by, by default, you are working with people from different 
economic, socioeconomic, cultural backgrounds. And this will create an exchange of information in a way that allows a society to accelerate faster than ever before. Absolutely. And there is this belief often that people don't have better things, better opportunities in life, better jobs because they don't work hard enough. And it really drives me nuts to hear that because when I think about it, first, people need to be aware that the opportunities exist. And we all live very different realities. And I think, at least from my position of privilege, I can see how I often keep a few things, like many things for granted, right? That that I know of because I've had all these, all these opportunities in life, all this exposure, this international exposure that I know of scholarships and awards and stuff. And I know that oh, I know how to use the internet to find really weird stuff that will benefit me. So first, people need to have awareness of the opportunities and that is not the case for the most part. Secondly, people need to believe that is possible for them, that that course and that job are not just there for like this white dude in California, that actually this is also possible for this female, amazing person in like Lagos, Nigeria as well. And very often, the people around you also has to believe that is for you, your family, the people supporting you emotionally and financially. Accessing better opportunities is not that obvious because you realize that when you, you know, bring awareness and then work on, you know, imposter syndrome or make it, or you put it on your side and make sure you make sure that people know that is for them, and then you truly change the product and change the model to make it for them, then people embrace those opportunities. Like you couldn't see more privileged backgrounds. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And it, it's just a matter of checking those boxes, which are not easy at all to check, but it's opportunities just waiting for all of us out there. Yeah, that's truly incredible. Ariel, I, another commonality we have is that we're actually both solo founders who went through YC. And so one of the things I'd love to hear about right now is if we fast forward to after you, you've basically sold your first company, you've lived in this completely different environment, you've seen things that other people haven't, it, eventually you get this insight, which leads to the founding of Microverse. You found Microverse, you eventually go through YC. Uh, tell us about that journey in the initial days of Microverse and ultimately how did going through YC impact the business? How did it change how you were thinking about the business mechanics, student experience, or anything else that you might have gotten from those 12 weeks? Yeah. So I think there was a moment that I always remember researching this like Bloom's to Sigma problem that many people in like pedagogy and education world are familiar with. How do we come up with a model that is as good as having one dedicated teacher or tutor per student, which it's ideal and it's, you know, utopical, like it's not going to scale, it's not, it's not realistic. So how do we come up with a model that is as good as that? And there was one row on the table, which was collaborative learning, peer-to-peer learning. And and something clicked there because it was like, okay, that can work. I can see how that doesn't have the fragility based on the need for teachers that I was seeing in, in Africa, but also something that is highly collaborative will also be a really good place to teach the skills to work multiculturally. Fast forward, like you know, a few years later, we have students in almost 150 countries, like active, full-time students, right? So, and you spend eight hours a day working if you were in a real remote team with people from all these countries. So that is the kind of experience that was created. But 
there were like a lot of TED talks back then, or you know, putting people putting computers in the middle of like towns in India, and then kids started to figure out how to you know use computers with no one teaching them. And I was like, yeah, we were so curious. It's just a matter of motivation and making it fun and surrounding yourself with people who are also excited about that. And there's something magical there. And the first experiment that I launched around this was called Code Roulette. And it was like chat roulette without private parts, unexpected private parts in the camera. And instead of you just being matched with a random stranger or their webcam and audio, you're random with the with your match with the random developer, and you were given a random coding challenge that you had to solve through programming. And I launched this on Product Hunt, I don't know, like 2015, 2016, 2016, I think. And I got over 20,000 people who tried it over the span of two weeks. And the feedback was like, you know, this is amazing. This is so new. This is so cool. So, so unique. And, and I was like, okay, that's special. And then I had access to this big brother mode. I could watch some of the recordings of the sessions. And I noticed that there were like two types of sessions. The ones where both people had a similar level of commitment to the experience. And they went all in. They had fun, they learned from each other, they started adding each other on Facebook and sharing pictures of their families. It was so human, even though it was remote and online. And then there were the people where one had a high level of commitment and one had a low level of commitment. They were just curious. They didn't turn on the camera or the video. And it was a very bad experience for the person with a high level of commitment. So I think that was the first important probably obvious right now, but then executing in this not that obvious, that lesson that in a collaborative environment, in a you know, peer-to-peer learning environment, the level of commitment of the peers has to be similar. Otherwise, it doesn't work out well. I decided actually to leave Lonely Planet after a couple of years to launch my careers. I know that launching a company, it's impossible to do part-time, at least for me. And doing that in San Francisco meant either eating all my time, my savings very quickly or raising capital prematurely and raising capital. I mean, that, that's another important lesson from the previous company. Starting a company, if you're committed to that, even if it doesn't go that well, it's going to take four or five years of your life. Ah, that was too precious, too short to do that for something you don't care about. So I didn't want to be stuck with something just because I had raised money. So I, I packed my suitcases in order and I moved with my uh, wife to Vietnam. And we actually lived between Vietnam and Indonesia for a year while I was working full-time in my course where my runaway was infinite. And I was able to truly validate that this checked all the boxes that were important to me. And I only started raising money and stealing once those elements were there. And the elements are present enjoyment, regardless of the future outcomes. Also, the possibility of having a lot of fun in the future. And then a lot of stimulation, both intellectual side of things, of scaling and complex and system and problem. And then on the kind of emotional side of things, the joy of helping someone, the joy of making a positive difference. And that happened after that first year in in Asia, where I ran the school by myself and I did all the roles 
with a very small group of students, like 12 students. And I started with just two students, one from Kenya, one from Serbia. And they said, hey, here's this you know, course that I have curated for you. I'm not creating content as commodity. You can find this content by yourself. In fact, I chose a course that they had both tried and failed because they didn't have the accountability. And I said, I want to mention that you finish it by giving you the accountability, but I'm going to create the system from that. I'm not going to do it as a teacher. I'm going to give you another person who is as committed as you are, and you will hold each other accountable until you finish it. And sure, I want to surround by that by some career coaching, by some a few other things I want to connect you with, with mentors, with people in your life that will give you access to a wider uh, perspective. But I think that you, at the end of the day, it's the two of you holding each other accountable, sharing the, the joys and sharing the sorrows. And we did that for a year with 12 different students. And then the next four students being getting co-reviews by the first two students. And I started building the system where like one student was learning with each other. And then the more advanced students were helping the new students and said, it was super fun. It was already people from, I think, seven different countries back then. So the multicultural element was there from the very beginning because that was half of the learning experience was how to work, how to like, like learn how to work internationally and multiculturalist. That had to be there from the beginning. And people from that group went on to get jobs like that coming from Kenya as working at Microsoft still today. And, and that you know, really makes me happy. But at the end of that year, I realized, okay, this is it. It checks all the boxes. So I moved back to San Francisco. We, I actually applied to one Combinator for the eighth time in my life. In the previous seven times I, I, I had gotten rejected. I applied six uh, times. I, so we also have that in common. There you go. Yeah, I know my, my ego, I have it unchecked. It's okay. <laughs> I know that I'm worth it, whether I get accepted or not, but not getting accepted doesn't mean that I won't get accepted. So why not try it again? And at this point, I already had you know, a lot of like YC founders that I knew. I had gotten introduced to one of the, you know, one of the partners. Networking all, always helps. Of course, I had, I got a lot of coaching on how to prepare it, made application. And yeah, I mean, we, we, we got in, uh, that was a fun story as well. And back then you, I was a solo founder, but I had started growing the team. We were 10 people and I, I had done another accelerator, uh, 500 startups with my previous startup. And I knew that it was experience that is very limited to the founders. But as a solo founder, I wanted to extend the experience to my, my, my team. So what I did was I rented two big houses in San Jose and I got all the people already from, I think, eight countries back then to fly over and live with me for the three months of the YC program where every night that I was going to a group, you know, coaching session or like a YC dinner, or every time I talked to an investor, like I came back at 9 p.m. at, the, at, at our YC house and told it, and everybody was waiting there, playing games and waiting for the CEO to come back. And they all were like, you know, expecting them. Okay, what happened today? Today, I shake the hand of Brian Chesky and, you know, he told me X, or I met uh, Paul Bam today and he decided to invest or, you know, and it was such an amazing thing to be able to like bond like that and to be able to, to share the experience of YC with everybody. One of the things that I think YC does really well is that partners don't, they're not experts necessarily in your specific vertical or in your specific, you know, challenge, but they're experts at getting you to use your own powerful brain. So you get there every week and they tell you, 
what what's your you know blocker right now? And you say, I, I'm trying to get a hundred new students and it's gonna be hard because X, Y, and Z. And the first thing they say is like, why not a thousand? And you're like, what are you talking about? I'm telling you that a hundred is horrible. Why do you even ask a thousand? But what they do with that is they force you to have to think outside of the box to challenge your own assumptions. We are often so stuck in our own self-limiting elements. And when you work like that, you're like, I needed to get a thousand. I will need like to pay them to be able to join the school. Not only not charge them, I'll have to pay them. It's like, why didn't you pay them? What do you mean? Where am I going to get the money from? It's like, I mean, just build a, you know, do you think that financially it can work out? Only if they pay back at the end. Just go and do it. It's like, wait, I don't have the money. Go and get the money, right? And I'm like, huh? And they're like, okay, whatever. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll figure this out. And then I went back to the house and I said, hey, team, we have 48 hours to launch this as an experiment with 100 people. We, need, we have 48 hours to get the funding from some donors or somebody, you know, some foundations who want to, you know, offer these cash advances to diverse people joining our program, and we're going to launch it. And with it, and if you look at the, the corporate of enrollments of those weeks, it's one of the highest ever. Now we're much higher, but uh, no, it, it, you can clearly tell what, what that did. And that's not necessarily something that was completely sustainable. But it taught us to challenge our assumptions and to think outside of the box. And, and then to, to do whatever it takes at the beginning, because as an engineer, I default to trying to find a scalable solution. One of the first things they say is I talk to your customers and do things that don't scale. So, okay, I'm going to do this in a very non-scalable way. I'm going to learn something like that. And then I'm going to decide what is the scalable version of this if this happens to work. And you end up moving at a speed then it's really, really rare to achieve in any other time in your company. But you also get to do things or you get to think outside of the box in ways that you don't normally think. And it's pretty magical what happens when you do it that way. Yeah. And it, yeah, I, and I could attest to it. It's, it's the, again, it comes down to that accountability, right? The accountability of the group partners, the accountability of your other batch mates, and also the accountability of the other team that were there that was depending on you to build this business. Yeah. Absolutely. By the way, I always say that in many ways, Microris is like YC for software engineers, except that instead of having partners, we have built the software that kind of orchestrates all these peer-to-peer groups so that they learn from each other, challenge each other, and hold each other accountable. But it's, it's very similar in that sense. That's incredible. And, and I think... Another way that this uh, similarity also, I guess this analogy also works out is that at the end of the day, any cohort-based experience is really magical because we, what you do is you bring together people who they have a common goal and together they work towards each other, with each other for, this com- for the duration of this cohort to get to this common goal. And this shared mission almost brings everybody together. So. This is also the magical part about YC, about Microverse, about other of these like cohort-based programs is it's actually one of the fastest ways to build community because you're on this journey with people who are on the same journey and that, that, that community just naturally starts to build. And that's a community you have for life, not just for the duration of YC. I'm sure it's the same. It happened for me. I'm sure it's the same with you. Like the, your team, it was a bonding activity for them to go to the program, but it was also a bonding activity for you 
and all your batchmates. And th- those are friends you're going to have for life now. Absolutely. In the same way that it is for our students, and we always say a big part of what you're getting here is a global network for the rest of your life. And you never know where the opportunities and where the insights will come in your life. But if you want to work and want to think, think big yourself like people who are thinking and working that way and this is what this school is about yeah. ariel I, I know we have we have about 10 minutes left in, in the conversation and so i really want to get to the juicy meat of the conversation which is microverse's unique model so we you've talked about this before but for people who might not be familiar tell you have this model which is very peer-to-peer no classes without teachers without charging up front and you have tremendous stats 60% completion rate, 90% job placement, 300% increase in salary, and over 75% in NPS. How did you accomplish this? Walk us through in detail the microverse system and why it works. So there are two answers to why it works. And one is in the, the experience at small scale, and then there is how do we scale the experience. And I'm not going to spend so much time on the how do we scale, but I think an important message there is that you have to productize things. When keeping things running depends on people in your team who have to keep them running, eventually they don't scale because every time you need to make a change, you have to change what's in the head of every person who's running that, and it's really hard to deliver that in an ecosystem way. Also, when you're working with the lives of people and their like hopes and dreams in life that they're putting into their education. If you ever have to kick out someone of the school or, or, you know, someone who is not performing and it's impacting their peers, like it is a, it can be a really highly emotional decision that can make the person having to tell the student, you have to be out, pay a really high toll on that. If you can productize all the policies, all the decisions and everything and transparently share the why, then it is something that can scale much more. And then the human layer is still there because you still have all the peers. We also have a student success team, you know, they're real humans and like supporting you when things get, get really rough. But everything, the, the commitment is not with the school, it's with the peers. And if you ever need to leave the school temporarily before you come back, you know that it's because it's impacting other peers. If you need to repeat a week, that is because you didn't achieve mastery, which means you, it's good for you to spend another week going deeper into that topic it's for your own learning and your own opportunities so then when the system tells you you have to repeat the week you don't blame the system you know that it's an opportunity that you're given i'm saying this because productizing things and letting like software drive that it's super super important and things like what you do can actually help uh, a lot of new schools so that they don't have to build all of that stuff, stuff like things from scratch now on the other hand it is that okay what do we do that is different so the first element is that we are a purely project-based learning school. So we don't have theory classes. We have projects. We just, our design principle is that learning should look the same as working. And I say working in this case in a software engineering role as part of a distributed multicultural team. So from day one, you get assigned a project. And of course, we design the curriculum, all the scaffolding of the curriculum, so that the first day you're getting a very simple project, and then you're going to build upon that to get something more complicated. And by the end of the program, things have been designed so that you end up building things 
that are as complicated in a setting that is as complex as the one that you will find a month after that in your job. So that it just feels like another day in the school, but you grew gradually to that point. So following this idea, you get a project and then some projects are individual projects. Some projects are projects that you do through pair programming. Some projects are group projects. When it is individual projects, you still have a learning partner and you work with that person where you support each other. You're both working the same hours. You have um, certain like, you know, times of the day where you have to meet. There's accountability driven by software around this and you're supporting each other because you're both building the same project. So you're both going through the same experience and share sorrows and happiness sorrow and, and share joys and uh, tries to joy. You go through the same you're helping each other out. If you already finished and the other person is stuck, then you jump to helping the other person. When it's a pair programming project, you actually have the same code base and you're switching between the driver and the navigator role. One is coding, one is guiding, and you're switching the roles so that you are building it together. And then when you're in a group of uh, you know, project, you are working on a larger project with more than you know, just one person longer, and then you split the work and then you work on it individually and then you merge it. So surrounded by all of this, which happens from Monday through Friday every week, and then at the end of Friday, you need to submit the project. You can submit it earlier. You get at least one code review. And the code reviews are done by more advanced students who already did that project, already got a positive review from another student. And the co-reviewers, not only are more advanced students, but also they need to apply to become co-reviewers and churn rate is actually quite low. They didn't go through training. They have rubrics that they need to follow and they go through quality assurance process, which then they're doing a great job, but also they get rated by the peers that they are reviewed their code for. And we actually uh, even have awards for those people who have the highest peer ratings while still having really low pass scores. Because it's really easy to get a really high peer rating where you will pass everyone because you make it easy for people. It's really hard to get a great peer rating where you reject people and say, hey, you still have to do better. So we have a lot of systems there. And then you have part and core reviewers who are full-time students and they're doing this on, on, on their side and they're getting paid for this, which helps them financially, which again, goes back to our mission of helping people that couldn't afford this kind of things otherwise. And it's not just paying for tuition, you still have to pay for food, for internet, for housing, and you know, it all fits itself. And then you have people who already completed the program who can apply to temporarily become full-time co-reviewers, and they are the ones who are doing the quality insurance of the part-time co-reviewers. But at the end of the day, you have this system that works really consistently to deliver high-quality co-reviews, and you get that. But if you don't, uh, get a successful thumbs up by Friday, then you have to work again on your project and submit it again. If by the end of Friday, you have gone through several reviews and you still haven't gotten a thumbs up, you repeat the entire week. And it might be with the same coding partner with a different one, but you get to work on that project from scratch again. And that is an opportunity to go way deeper because you didn't, you, you needed more time because we have designed the deadlines and the scopes of the projects so that People who have achieved mastery in those concepts can't do it in five days. But if you haven't achieved mastery or if you're distracted by stuff, then you won't. And then you can't repeat the same week more than once. So that because if you do, that means that there's something else going on. You need to go and tackle that. And it can be financial difficulties. It can be health difficulties. It can be distractions at home. But if that's starting to impact your peers, you need to take a step back 
and one to net. So this repetition system combined with the, the, the push with the deadlines, it gives you the accountability to do your best every week, but also the flexibility to both deal with the lack of predictability in the life, in your life, plus deal with the fact that you might need more time than other people to master certain thousands. And then we wrap this with onboarding mentors, and then you have students who also become practice session coordinators for applicants who want to join the school, and alums who do mock interviews for people looking for jobs. And then you have all like even applicants who are interviewing each other. And that's how we decide who gets into the school. Peer-to-peer is everywhere at Metro's. And it is all wrapped up by software that is what orchestrates the, all these different structures so that things can flow in a very clear, consistent, and scalable way. That's what Metro says. Yeah. Wow. This is tremendous. I'm sure there are educators all over the world listening to this and just, just their jaws just dropped because what you've t- discussed here, Ariel, is a pedagogical breakthrough. Like it, it, what you guys have done, this is something that I've never heard of. And I, again, I've talked to many education leaders. Nobody's thinking of doing this. And you found a way to make this model work in areas around the world where they don't have even sometimes clean water. And so to be able to connect people in different, from different cultural backgrounds, different kind of even languages and have them collaboratively work together. And then at the end of it, land high paying engineers and software engineering. That is truly incredible. And I know we are running out of time and here. Doing, 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 am I doing that without charging people up front, which is what most schools do to only get people with high level of commitment. That has also been hard to crack and something that I, I wouldn't ignore if I were to launch stuff like this. Yeah. And, and. That is a tremendous uh, leap forward, I think, in terms of education and pedagogy and curriculum design. I know since we're running out of time, uh, we don't, we might not be able to go deep on this, but I want to leave you with this final question, which is why aren't more people doing this? And if more people wanted to do this after listening to this episode, like how do they get started? So the reason there are not more people doing this is because it's really hard. And everybody who tries peer-to-peer learning and true peer-to-peer learning, not just maybe a forum where people get to exchange messages, a true collaboration, they realize that it's really hard to deliver in a consistent way. So it's hard to scale. And then they realize, okay, there are, there are other ways. For us, it goes back to our mission. So the why is because we need to have a massive deep belief in the why you're doing things, right? So in our case, it comes from this vision for the world that the place where you're born shouldn't determine your opportunities in life. And we believe that we can get to the world by providing world-class education to people that can help them get to these international opportunities that they wouldn't have had access to otherwise. But in order to take the risk on offering that type of education, you need to come up with a model that is accessible, but if it also has to be high quality, it's going to be expensive. So how do you make something accessible and affordable that is expensive? You have to then be very creative and think outside of the box to come up with a new way of delivering this experience that is much more cost efficient. And that's what drives the peer-to-peer learning model. The other factor that drives it is this multicultural component that delivers 
the kind of education that is not just technical, but also that allows people to get to high paying international jobs. That is the flywheel. Because of the peer-to-peer learning model, we get to like lower the cost of education while increasing scalability. And then we get to give this multicultural experience. Because of the multicultural experience, people have access to higher paying jobs. Because higher paying jobs, we get to charge much more than what a local university or bootcamp will charge. Because we charge more and our costs are lower, we have higher margins. And because we have higher margins, we can then take risks that other schools can take so that we can truly deliver on that mission and work towards that mission that we deeply believe on. And we are a pain in the neck when it comes to hiring because we only hire people with an absolute you know, belief that this mission is the reason they're joining this job. Yeah. Incredible. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. This was a blast of a conversation. Listeners, if you want to learn more about Ariel or Microverse, we'll include links in the show notes. Until next time, this is Ish and Ariel signing off. We'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed that episode, would really appreciate a review or a subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. It really helps us get the word out. With that, this is Ish signing off.